to the City of the Great King podcast. Yes, it is here. At last, this podcast is the teaching arm of Tyler Sawatsky. That is me. Hello. A Christian minister in Windsor, Ontario. It serves to teach us about God's kingdom and proclaim it over the cities of Earth. Some bonus goodies may be included. It aims to feature teaching episodes, devotionals, interviews, as well as sermons, Sunday school classes, and more. Psalm 48, 1, allow me to read it to you, says this, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, here it is, the city of the great king. That was Psalm 48.1. Welcome. I am glad you are here. This has been a long time in the making. But we are here at last. As mentioned, there will be various different things that will be posted to this feed. But I'm getting used to this, okay? This is new ground, you could call it. And in this inaugural episode... It is going to feature some audio from last Sunday, Sunday, May 8th, which was Mother's Day. I I teach our adult Sunday school at uh, Campbell Baptist Church in Windsor, Ontario. And I recently began a class in Augustine, Augustine the early church father. So bear with me as I try to figure out doing this podcasting thing, but for now... There will be that class posted every week, as well as my sermons. Not all, actually most of my sermons are have not been recorded until now. But going forward, I hope they will all be recorded. They will be posted to this podcast feed as well, along with that Augustine Sunday School service. And then there will be other stuff. So I'm looking to get this thing expanded, have several uploads a week, but... We'll leave that in the hands of the Lord. But for now, in this inaugural episode, we are going to listen to my Sunday School audio from last week. Hope you enjoy it. Come back for episode two. The way this is going to work, we open with blues. You like that opening track? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great track. We open with blues, we do the program, and we close with more blues. Look, it's simple. It's blues or bust. All right? That's how we do things around here. Hope you enjoy it. God bless you. Well, good morning. Welcome to our Sunday school class, adult Sunday school, and also happy Mother's Day. Today we celebrate the mothers in our lives. And you love when the Lord aligns the things that you do in a church. Uh, tonight, in our evening service, we've been doing the Ten Commandments. And what commandment are, do we just happen to be doing tonight, but the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and your mother. It's great how things work out like that. Oh, bless you, bless you. I am excited to show to you what I have been working on for some time now. And we are, look, we are embarking on a series, Okay. This, this ain't going to be over today. It's not going to be over next week. We're going to do this slow and very 
Well, let me tell you what we're gonna do. We're studying Augustine. Let's get the first issue out of the way now in terms of how to pronounce this. <laughs> I am going to quote who I think it was R.C. Sproul who said this. Augustine is the church father. Augustine is a city in Florida. Okay? <laughs> Augustine. We are studying Augustine. We are doing an historical, theological, and devotional analysis of the great Western church father. This is, you're used to some of this. When you hear uh, a series about a certain person or a certain work, what you often get is the historical, and in a church you will get the theological. That's quite common. Uh, we could have this wrapped up pretty quickly if we were just going to look at his life and times, what he believed, move on. And that's very helpful. We are going to do that. The unique part about this study is the devotional analysis that we are going to give to Augustine and the things that are brought up in his life. For instance, we're going to be talking today a little bit about, or a lot, about his childhood and how he has a pagan father and a devout Christian mother. Okay? So that's already, you can see... There's going to be some conflict in the upbringing of this boy, and it shapes, it helps shape who he becomes. And so we're going to look at the idea then of raising children when one parent is a believer and the other isn't. So we take things from his life and make it a devotional point of application for today. So that's going to be the difference between this series is the devotional analysis and any other series you might do on a particular person or an event. I'm going to be just going through the notes and all for, I'm hoping, 30 minutes, at most 40. If I'm a good boy, I'm 30 minutes. And then we can discuss and take questions in the final 10 minutes or so. Of course, if you have a clarifying question in the middle of it, feel free to, to bring it up. So today we are going to begin the life and times of Augustine. And the first question might come up, why study this guy? Who, what's the great importance about this guy? Well, that's a great question, but for the first part, I got a timeline up here. You see the dates. We're looking at the 300s. So he's born in 354. He's often considered the last early church father. So we are getting into the mind and the writings of somebody who is only a few hundred years after the time of Christ. We sit a couple thousand years after Christ with very developed systematic theologies. But what did they believe in the 300s? I think you might be a little bit surprised and a bit comforted by what we come to. So not only for the historical benefit, but uh, consider John Calvin. Now, John Calvin was a theological behemoth in the 1500s. When he quoted from ancient sources, the number one source that he quoted, the scriptures, of course. Number two, Augustine. It was Augustine. That's how important Augustine was to theological developments that the Western church took on. And when I say Western church, that is the Protestant tradition, that is the Roman Catholic tradition. It's basically anything that's not Eastern Orthodox. Uh, we consider that the Western Church. Well, let's set the stage to begin this study. Augustine 
came into a time of, there was, there was a passing phase in history. You couldn't have known it at the time, and he certainly didn't know it, but being born in the empire of Rome, in a, an empire that stood for centuries, nobody could take it over, nobody could challenge Rome. They were the strongest empire on earth for hundreds of years. They couldn't have known it at the time, but the empire was actually starting to run on fumes at this point. There, it was a time of turbulence. It was a time of transition. You couldn't have known it, but Augustine actually lived through what many consider to be the fall of Rome. The first time that the city of Rome was attacked and taken was in the year 410. That hadn't happened for nearly a thousand years. So Augustine did not know what was coming, but the, the empire was really running on fumes at this point, even though the city of Rome itself was called the Eternal City. You couldn't take it. It was impenetrable, kind of like the Titanic. That's another story. <laughs> the year 313, we'll begin there. And I got this set up where we're going to look at the, the timeline of Augustine himself and how it corresponds with world events. The year 313 is significant. Does anybody know why? Christianity is what in 313? I hear someone whispering legalized. You got it. It was actually illegal to practice Christianity for hundreds of years after it came onto the scene. But in the year 313, Christianity is legalized. And I say that was probably a good move because much of the empire was converting. No matter the oppression, no matter how much they tried to stump it out, it continued to grow, and converts were, people were converting en masse. Legions of Christians were coming to the faith. So Christianity has only recently been legalized in the empire. Let's fast forward 12 years, the year 325. There's a very important council, the Council of, does anyone know? Nicaea, there it is. This was an important council that dealt with the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. So it's not that they didn't already have or know the, full, the humanity and the divine parts of Christ, but as typically happens in church history, once you have heretics and others putting down on paper what their beliefs are and attacking the faith, and it's like, now we have to go and define this thing. We already all know it, but then you have to do the work of defining it. So that happened in 325. Now, right around that time, Augustine's parents are born. So they're really in the first generation of legal Christianity, and he will be born to parents who had that freedom given to them for the first time. Let's fast forward a couple decades. 354 A.D., Augustine is born in a village called Tagast. Now, Tagast, if you look into your phone on Google Maps and you type in Tagast, what will come up is Tagast, Algeria. It is in the what we call today Algeria up in the northeastern parts. Not quite in the desert, more in the fertile area there, but not on the coast. It's not called Tagast anymore. It's called something else. But that's where he is born. It is a village. Uh, back then, it was inhabited by tribesmen. It is still mostly just inhabited by tribesmen. That's where he was born. It was a Roman province. He was a citizen of the Roman Empire. And in that place, they spoke Latin. Latin was 
the language that he was proficient in. Yes, Dil? Sorry, where was he born? Like, is it in Africa? It's in Africa, it's in Africa. yeah. Okay. It's a province in North Africa. Uh, so the coast of that province is right along the Mediterranean. But he's not born on the coast. He's born inland a little bit. Yeah. So they spoke Latin. They were under Roman rule. He was raised in a Roman Latin culture. However, as I mentioned, he lived to see the city of Rome fall in 410 to barbarians. And what was unique about him is that event caused chaos. The ripple effect of the Rome being taken for the first time was, it was catastrophic to the, to the people in the province, provinces of the Roman Empire. But he was not very phased by it. And he saw Rome as another great empire that was just part of the changing times, the Lord raising empires and destroying them. That was a little bit odd. And I don't know that he could have done that without his Christian faith. But that's where he was a bit different than others. And we'll see later in this series how he acted in that time in very significant ways. Now, Augustine was born to a pagan father and a devoutly Christian mother. Most likely his parents were married by arrangement, as was very common in the day. They were probably married at a young age by their families. His father was a respected civil servant. He earned a good wage. He had some importance in the, in the area, especially in Tagast. So he was, a, he was a respected guy. He was doing well for himself. He could provide for his family, but he's a pagan. He did not embrace Christianity. He wasn't... The good thing about this, and you see it in the providence of God, he wasn't anti-Christianity. He was just... Uh, they can do their thing. Uh, uh, don't bother me with that. But I, I'm going to do my own thing. That was more his attitude. His mother, however, is a devout Christian. And her name is Monica. She will play a very important role in this whole story. So Monica is her name. There, in the empire, as mentioned, there is no requirement yet to be Christian. Now, notice how I say there's no requirement yet, because sometime down the line, we'll get into the timeline where not only is Christianity legalized, but eventually it becomes the state religion. And to be a Christian no longer means to be avoiding trying to run away from execution, but it means if you're not a Christian, you, you need to play the Christianity card to kind of advance in your career and politics and whatever you're doing, it becomes the state religion. In this time, children, especially boys, followed the religion of the father. So his mother could not pass the faith to him. He had to follow the religion of the father. Paganism. This brings up the question of what do you do if you're in Monica's shoes? And we're going to look at that. But first, let's look at the, the, this fact that he was expected to follow the religion of his father. I want to take a, take a second to see the importance of fathers. Importance of fathers. The first thing I want to look at is the importance of fathers on the faith of their kids. Pulling data from Promise Keepers and from Baptist Press in 2017 
The data found that if a father does not go to church, even if his wife does, only about 1 in 50, that is 2% of those children will become regular worshipers as adults. About 2% if the father does not regularly go to church. If the father does go regularly, regardless of what the mother does, between 66% to 75%, between two-thirds to three-quarters of those kids will attend church regularly as adults, if the father does, if the mother does not. If the father goes, but the mother does not, a minimum of two-thirds go. And it goes up to 75% if the mother goes as well. This data tracks along similar lines if the father attends irregularly. You know, there's a lot of men who will attend church maybe once a month, twice a month, maybe six times a year, handful of times. If the father attends church irregularly, and that's the environment that the children are growing up in, the data shows that between 50 to 66% of those kids will also attend irregularly as adults. The practice of the father on the faith often becomes the practice of the children. And we're not going to data back in the 50s. This is not the 60s. This was data published in 2017. This is recent data. Even in these modern, I'll say feminist and egalitarian times, when we try to downgrade the role of a father or try to level out all the differences and pretend that there's, there's no differences between the two, the data, the data shows that the way that God made things is still the way it is. No matter how a feminist and egalitarian culture might fight against it. Let's look at the data on Sunday school. You are in Sunday school right now. Adult Sunday school has always been a practice of the church as well as for children. If both the mother and the father go to Sunday school, 72% of the kids will go to Sunday school as adults. Did your parents go to Sunday school? There's a good chance that for most of you in this room, it came from parents who went to Sunday school. Or you learned it from a parent who did go to Sunday school. 72%. What if just the dad goes and mom doesn't go come to Sunday school? 55% of kids will as adults still go to Sunday school. Over half. What if just mom goes? 15%. 15. What if neither mom nor dad go to Sunday school? They still go to church, but they don't come to Sunday school. What is the percentage that their kids will go to Sunday school if neither go? You ready? It's 6%. 6%. Next, let's look at family conversion rates. If the first Christian in the family is the child, let's say the child converts first, what is the chance that the rest of the family will convert? Well, if it's the child, about 3.5% of families end up converting. 3.5%. Very low percent. If your kid converts first, that the parents will end up being converted. 3.5%. What if the mother is first to convert? There's about a 17% chance the rest of the family will convert. 17. What if the father is first? You ready? Again? 
percent chance the whole family converts. This is from two different sources. This data is also similar in the Pew Research Center as well. It, this is not just one study. If the father converts first, there's a 93% chance the rest of the family converts. Now, how about we take a look at the commands of Scripture. What does the Scriptures say about this role of the father and the importance of the father? And I do find it a little bit ironic that I'm talking about fathers so much right now on Mother's Day. But we are getting there, I promise. <laughs> if you would turn to Ephesians 6, please. Ephesians 6, 4. In Ephesians 6, Paul is going to give some commands to children and to parents. And in verse 4, he has this to say, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Who's who was given the primary responsibility to raise up children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord? It's the Father. See, some would say that, oh, it's kind of just blanketed. It's a, it's a general. He's just using Father, but he means Mother as well. There are times where, he, where it will just talk about there were 4,000 men present. Well, the actual people present, though, were, it didn't include the women and children. But this is a case where Paul could have used a different word here. He is specifically talking about fathers. In the New Testament, the job is given to the father to raise children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's your responsibility to raise your kids in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. This was part of the covenant community from the earliest times. If you go to Deuteronomy, we see what the Lord thinks about how children should be raised when it comes to the faith. It was a faith to be passed down. Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Deuteronomy 4. No, Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. Your heading, as it says in my Bible, might say the greatest commandment. You go down to verse 4. And we'll read through verse 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. That is how often Parents, specifically fathers, are to teach their children the ways of the Lord. It is not a job to punt to the church. Fathers, it is not a job to punt to your wife. The scripture gives the command that fathers are taking the primary responsibility of raising children in the Lord. And that is how, that is an, an idea of how to do it, is how much you're supposed to talk about it to your kids this gets me thinking about another question about the way we attract men to the church. Okay, um, Do you know what the, uh, the most popular days to go to church are in a year? Uh, number one and two should be easy. Easter. You, 
Christmas, the C&E's, Christmas and Easter, most popular days to come to church. You want to know what the third most popular day to come to church is? Mother's Day. This day is the third most highest attended day of church in the year. You want to know what the lowest attended day of church is in the year? Father's Day. Really. Mother's Day is the third most attended. Father's Day is the lowest attended day of church in the year. Isn't that amazing? And so, let's think about this. Scripture gives an important role to fathers, puts them as the heads of their families, as the responsible for raising their children in the Lord, and with the stats showing that 93% of the time, if the father converts, the rest of the family will too, that should inform us about how we set up our worship settings, our worship services, the way that we appeal to people. We should be appealing to men. Now, I'm not saying that we should not appeal to women also. This, I'm just looking at the data that we got going here and the commands of Scripture. If everything that you're doing, the setup of a room, is just geared to what women will like and you don't really think about how a man might take it, the man turns away, you could be turning away a whole family. And we need to be thinking, is this a place where men want to be? Because if men want to be here, oftentimes the family comes with. If the man doesn't want to come, if it's not set up, if it's feminist in nature, if it's egalitarian in nature, that'll draw men away. And you can lose children at alarming rates. Not only can you, you do lose children at alarming rates when the father is not central in the worship experience of the church. You win the dad, you often win the family. Now, Monica, I mentioned she is a very devout Christian mother. If we turn to back to the book of Ephesians, we're going to combine her faith with what the scriptures say here. She knows what the scriptures say in Ephesians 5. I'm just going to read one verse. Make that 2, 22 and 23. Many of you know it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Okay, so Monica is a believer. She reads this. She knows that she is called to submit to her husband, but her husband's a pagan. Does this say, though, that wives submit to your own husbands only if they are in the Lord? See, she's in a bit of a, bit of a hard situation here where she wants to raise her boy in the Lord and obey all the scriptures say about teaching your children. Actually, in our work, main worship service, we're looking at the second section of Proverbs 1, where it says, do not turn away the instruction of your mother. That's going to be there. So she knows that that's there too. She wants to raise him in the faith, but in the culture she's in, she can't pass the faith to him. He's going to follow the faith of the father. But this is the second part we're going to look at. The power of a faithful mother. Power of a faithful mother. She knows she's supposed to submit to her husband, follow his lead. So what do you do when the father doesn't believe and she can't pass on the faith? Well, 
This was what Monica did. She raised her boy, Augustine, to be familiar with Christianity. She took him, this is where it's good, that his father was a little bit unconcerned about this whole thing. He was okay with her taking him to church. And so she did. She took him to a local church in the village. She took him to Sunday school. And actually, uh, a young Augustine caught a fever, and it wasn't looking good. You caught fevers, it wasn't a guarantee you were going to be okay. So he was pretty sick. She was worried that he was going to pass away and tried to get him baptized. She wanted him to be baptized as a kid before, before he might die to this fever, but it wasn't allowed. And thank God, uh, the boy turned it around, turned the corner, and he was okay. She almost baptized him against the, uh, his father's wishes. What else would she do? She sang hymns in the home throughout the day. She would sing hymns. She would sing to him. She would pray over him. She's not pushing him to believe something, but she would sing hymns. She would pray over him. And this left an impression. He, Augustine's great because he actually wrote about his conversion experience. It's one of the first things that he wrote. And so later on in life, he would recall what happened in the home with his mother, the, the hymns that she would sing, how much she would pray over him, taking him to church even though he was not allowed to convert and he didn't want to anyway. All of this left a big impression on him, and he would say that this was a significant example to him, even though he didn't understand what was going on at the time. Now put yourself in Monica's shoes. You, you're concerned. He already had a time where he, he could have died as a young boy with fever, that's your greatest prayer as a Christian parent is that your children will know the Lord and be saved. It's your, it's your greatest prayer and she can't do it. So she's setting this example up for him, taking him to good places, that is the church. But, you know, she, she's submitting to the father, raising him to be familiar. She's doing the best that she can with the situation that she's in. She was faithful is what she was. And the power of that faithful mother would pay dividends later on in life when she probably had many days where she didn't know, does any of this matter? Am I even accomplishing anything by singing to him, taking him to church, praying over him? His father's a pagan. They're, he's not even allowed to convert. Am I just wasting my time being faithful to the commands of Scripture? Well, she would learn later in life that her greatest prayer was answered. Now, we're not going to be looking at Augustine's conversion today, but we can know now on this Mother's Day that the greatest prayer that that faithful mother had, she lived to see it be fulfilled later in life. And I don't know that that happens if she is not faithful in the hard situation that she was in. You have to submit to this man. You have to, you have to work in this culture. It was an arranged marriage. Like, the cards are against her, but she loves her Lord. She loves the scriptures. And that was going to be very powerful in raising up who would become one of the greatest theological giants to ever walk the earth. When Augustine turned 11, they sent him 20 miles south. He, now, he's, a, he's got a knack. He's got a bit of a brain, this kid. You're noticing him as a bit of a a smart aleck, we'll call him. He's got a brain. 
They sent them 20 miles south to a town that had much better schools. Tagast had okay schools, but this town had better schools. And like I said, his father, he had some importance. He had some wealth, so they could afford to send him. But he's 11 years old, and they send him away to this school. And think of the time they're in. They don't have cars. They, they can't text each other. There's not even pigeons, probably, that they can use to send messages across. You send your boy 20 miles south, you're not seeing your boy much. That's just the reality. So they send him away, and think about that fact, especially in light of what we've read here about the role of parents to their children. You're, you're supposed to be raising your kid in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's kind of hard when you punt that responsibility 20 miles south and you give it to somebody else to do. Uh, I think also about the alarming rates that we have of children when they, in the school system or when they go to university, you see how frequently, he's like, I've raised them to go to church. I've raised them in the faith. They go to college and university and they come back and they're, I don't even recognize them. This is not necessarily a new problem, but I think it is a worsening problem. And part of that is this punting that we do from our responsibility to raise our children in the faith, to diligently raise them. Don't push it to your church to do the primary job. Don't push it to the school to be the primary way that they're taught and instructed. Scriptures don't. They say these are helpful tools, but it's on you first to disciple your children. Now, He's at this school for four years. Four years he is at this school. He's 15 years old, and he returns because his father dies. While he's away, he's 15, his father passes away. But let's put ourselves in Monica's shoes once again. We talked about how her greatest prayer would have been the conversion of Augustine. But do you think that's the only one that she would be praying for and trying to win for the Lord? Not at all. In fact, she is a devout lover of the Lord, and she sought to convert her husband this whole time as well. And this whole time she is working on him by being a faithful wife to him. Despite the differences, she would pray for him constantly that before he passed away, he would know the Lord. And what happens but when Augustine's father gets sick near the end of his life, throws him into turmoil, and he starts considering everything his wife had been saying for a couple decades now. And just before the end of his life, it's one of those uh, deathbed-type moments, he converts, he confesses his sin, places his faith in Christ. Actually, one of the he knew he was close to the end. He gave instructions that I need to be baptized before I die. Even if I'm unconscious, baptize me. And what do you know, but when the time comes, the, the bishop comes, and he's going to get baptized, he's unconscious. They can't wait. He's not dead yet, but he is unconscious. And he got baptized unconscious before his death. He would wake up after that moment, he, but he didn't last very long, and he passed away. But Monica's example, you wonder, how does the Lord work in situations that are extremely difficult, where you don't know how the results could show, and her husband converts on his deathbed. Augustine would later on write about his father, saying that hearing that his father converted before he died, 
was another one of those big impact moments that he didn't quite get at the time. The father that he knew was not the guy who was on his deathbed. And he didn't know why that impacted him so much. But one of the things that that did is it softened him towards the ideas of faith and Christianity. That was one of the things that it did. So in later years, he would mention not only the example of his mother, but his father converting before his death greatly impacted him, even if it didn't register much at the time. So we're talking about this devotional question of raising children in the Lord, particularly when the circumstances are not ideal. One's not even a believer. How do you do it? Well, I have two answers to that question. Number one is that you stay faithful to your task despite the circumstances. I think we learned that from the example of Monica. She had to stay faithful despite the circumstances. You can imagine that a woman in that case, a wife, a mother, probably gives up on that task, on that role. This is hopeless. This is helpless. I don't like it. I can't do it. God is unfair for putting me in this situation. Why do I even serve him? You can see how people will give in to that temptation and they'll, they'll stop being faithful. It happens. But if you are faithful to your task despite the circumstances, even if you failed up until now, you can see how faithful the Lord is to those who love him. It's amazing. And Augustine's a great example. And then secondly, you leave the results to God. So you are faithful to your task but we understand that we do not have the power to convert kids. We do not have the power to convert adults. I can't convert anybody. Paul couldn't convert anybody. None of them, Apollos, none, none of them could convert anybody. All they could do was kind of like me dropping my, that was not on purpose. You scatter, the Lord's going to be the one who brings the growth. He's going to be the one who brings the regeneration, the new heart. You leave the results to God, but the situation that you are in, you stay faithful in. Raising our children in the Lord. Be faithful despite the circumstances and leave the results to God. Okay, well that is, that is our first session on Augustine. Next week, we're going to look at the second part of his life where he goes into more formal education. And let's just say that teen pregnancy and youthful wantonness is not a new thing. We'll get into that next week. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of this song and go win the nations.